0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams.
1: And I'm Kirk McElhern.
0: Hello, and thank you for listening to The Next Track. This is episode number 65. Um, We are, for for those of you listening in the future, hello from the past, we are recording this in uh, early August of 2017. It's summertime. And I don't know how things are in your neighborhood, but the inertia has kind of left my neighborhood. A lot of people have taken off to vacation, taken time off from work. I know I've been spending less time in front of the computer and more time relaxing a little bit. And that means I get to use more of my remotes. And that's what we're going to be talking about a little bit today.
1: So before we get into the main topic of this week's show, I want to talk about a little bit of news. And we don't do this often enough, and every once in a while there's some news, and we've talked about departed musicians and all that. But there's an article that was published a couple of days ago, which I have to say, this is some of the best writing about music I have seen in ages. It is all 165 Pink Floyd songs ranked from worst to best. Now, You see something like that, you think, as Doug might have, which he tweeted when he saw the article, I did that in high school, right? Yeah, but I regret
0: that tweet now. I was, uh, in my haste uh, to be snarky, uh, I was reacting to a tweet that said, somebody rated all 165 of Pink Floyd songs from worst to best, so... I didn't know who, who compiled the list. I'm, I'm thinking it's probably some intern at some magazine somewhere, but uh, well, that's, that's what not I, exactly... that's what
1: I thought until I saw who wrote the article. Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman. And I immediately thought it was Bill Wyman of the Rolling Stones, which it isn't. This is a different Bill Wyman.
0: And actually, he's one of my favorite music critics. He writes for New York Magazine. He used to do work with Salon and NPR. Um, he's, he, he's, he's a very astute music critic.
1: But this person really does not like Roger Waters and makes it very clear that... A lot of the songs that Roger Waters wrote, in particular, the first and last track on animals called Pigs on the Wing and Pigs on the Wing Part 2, because of the amount of royalties he got, he would have gotten about three quarters of a million dollars for those two little snippets as a songwriter, which, you know, is an awful lot of money for the same song being played twice with a few different lyrics in it. Some of the comments he makes are a bit throw away. Okay, you like Sid Barrett or you don't, you like this particular album or you don't, but a lot of them are extremely perceptive. And I think it gives a good look into what Pink Floyd was and and the history of the band and the fact that like most bands, they had good albums and bad albums.
0: It's a good article. And even if you're not into Pink Floyd, it's just good music criticism. Fun to read by Bill Wyman. We'll have a link to that article in the show notes. Also, I want to point you into the direction of the comment section on our episode last week, episode number 64 on album artwork, uh, several instructive and informative uh, comments from listeners with some of the details we left out about album artwork and some suggestions of where you can find decent album artwork online. We'll have a link to that show in the show notes too.
1: I got a question for you, Doug. How many remote controls
0: do you have in your living room? Oh, man. You know, if there's, I don't want my living room to look like the showroom of a Best Buy. So I go to great lengths to... To hide the tech, I, I wrap and dress the wires and keep them out of sight. And you know, I make sure the tech isn't so obvious. Hide things behind plants. And but the remotes, you know, you've got 16 remotes, and they they're all piled up on on top of the entertainment system or on a coffee table somewhere. So what we finally did was we went out and we put them in a nice basket. Everyone does, <laughs> right? Exactly. And you keep the basket by the sofa or wherever it is you're watching TV. And that way, when company comes over, you don't have your remotes scattered all over coffee tables and the entertainment system because I hate hearing, oh, I see your husband's a geek. I don't like that. So uh, we have them in the, this very nice basket. Dozens of them, it seems.
1: Yeah, in my living room, I've got the TV, the amplifier, the optical disc player, and the Apple TV. I used to have one more because I had an Amazon Fire TV before I got a new TV that has an Amazon app. But the only way I could get that content without sort of airplaying from an iPad to my Apple TV was to have the Fire TV device. I remember, I'm old
0: enough to remember that it was really exciting when you bought a piece of equipment and the first thing you'd say was, oh boy, it comes with a remote. And then eventually that evolved to, Oh, not another remote, because eventually all the components came with
1: remotes. Well, remember the days before remotes. Remember the days of black and white only TV, right? I remember when my parents only had a black and white TV. I think the first remote they got, I can't even remember if the color TV they had back in the early days had a remote control. I don't think it did. I remember an early remote control, instead of like a soft button remote, it had the kind of button that clicked. You know what I'm talking about?
0: Yeah, switches or that kind of...
1: Yeah, there were switches and they would stay down. But of course, we only had six or seven TV channels in New York back then, so it wasn't that much of a headache.
0: And I believe with those hardware remotes, you couldn't control like the volume or the color or or the contrast or things like that. It was purely for just changing the channel, I
1: believe. Or you couldn't control the vertical hold. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) which was a big problem. Remember the vertical hold that you had to adjust... And when you had to move the antenna around just right, ah, uh, the old, the good old days, right, of analog.
0: The first um, remote that I used was, um, it was hooked up to a cable box and it was a, a hardware switches, just like you suggest. It was like a, a game console sized box with a series of maybe 10 or 12 switches that clicked as you hit them. And then it also had another switch that, that set three different rows. So each button could inevitably, it could ultimately be three different
1: channels. Kind of like a shift key or something. Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So you'd have the first row would be 1 to 10, and the second row would be you know 11 to 20, that sort of thing. And this was connected by a wire to the cable box. Now, this was before most people had cable. I lived in a town that had been cableized since the 60s because they were somewhat remote. So we pretty much had the, the cutting-edge gear, and this was this ugly big shoebox-sized thing connected by a 20-foot wire to the... To the box on top of your TV, and then the other other first remote that I had was it wasn't mine. I actually used it with uh, reel-to-reel tape decks in the studio. They were just essentially a box that plugged into the tape deck, the reel-to-reel, so that you could be, you know, six, to eight feet away from it, and usually in front of another machine. You know, you'd have a slave/master setup, and s- since you couldn't possibly reach all of the tape decks, it was better to have these remotes there.
1: Yeah, sometime in the 90s, I remember we started seeing wireless remotes. And you didn't get them with every TV set at first, and then now it's just a throwaway thing. If I look on my desk, I've got three remotes. I've got my office stereo system. I've got a receiver and a CD player, and I've got a remote control for my Dyson fan, which is very practical to have. It's true that remotes are all over the place. And and of course, I've got a remote app on my iOS devices, which I can use to control iTunes running on either of my two computers. I really get a kick out of using
0: the remote. I, every time I go to use it, I'm amazed that I can actually do what I can with it. That is, send music to any room where I've got an AirPlay connection. It's st- I'm still marveling at it that I can just sit right here and sh- send music anywhere. I don't know how that evolved so quickly. It used to be such a, a big deal. It almost seemed like I had to do something from the remote location and then run to where the <laughs> device was to make sure that it was actually doing something. And,
1: and to get a, and to turn a switch or to check a light or something. Yeah, yeah, it's
0: like, oops, it didn't work. I've got to do it manually anyway. So there was, there's a lot of that that still goes on, actually, at my house, but that's because I don't. I haven't locked into one system. I'm always messing around.
1: We we did a show a couple months ago about in-home streaming, and we talked about using AirPlay. And one thing that I neglected to mention is that, so I explained that I use AirPlay from my iMac to my receiver, even when I'm listening at my desk, because it means that there's no wires and I can control it remotely with the remote app like that. But there's one thing that's really interesting, that if I use the remote from the receiver, the Yamaha remote, it controls iTunes. In other words, the AirPlay is a two-way thing. iTunes can tell the receiver what's playing and it even displays the name of the artist and song, but it accepts incoming commands from the remote. So I can play pause and I can change the volume and I can skip to next and previous track with it.
0: You can only do what the 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 hardware remote can do, right?
1: Right. I can't pick songs. Uh, I can't you know add something to a playlist because I don't have a display like that. It might be possible that with some AirPlay devices that do have a bigger display, you know, some of them have a big enough display, like in a car, that you can see artwork and all. And maybe you can scroll through a list and press a button to add to a playlist. But mine don't do that. Both of mine are simple, you know, alphanumeric LCD displays.
0: Well, I think by the time you get to, by the time you get to using your, your setup like that, you really only want to change the volume and you just want to let the music play. That's really, that's really all it's for.
1: Yeah, and if I don't, I can use the remote app on my iPhone and I can create a playlist like that or I can change the order of the songs in up next and remove songs from up next.
0: One of the things that I found awkward about the remote, as I said earlier, I'm I'm very excited about it. It works better on the iPad because you've got a bigger display and it's so much more fun to use than the iPhone version and I found that with several other remote type apps that I use on my iOS devices as well. But um like I said, being able to sit here with the iPad open with a a virtual iTunes sitting there on the screen is just a a great way to to run your songs in the house.
1: Uh, Interestingly, if you look at that iPad app, it looks like it was made under iOS 6 and hasn't been updated. It still has the brushed metal at the top. That's inside baseball for iOS users, but it is an app that hasn't been updated in years. It is true. It does look somewhat old. It works (laughs) great. Don't get me wrong, Apple, but
0: it does look kind of old.
1: So... Some years ago, I tried one of those universal remotes. It was a Logitech, and there are a number of companies that make universal remotes, but it seems that Logitech is by far the best. And I got it cheap on Amazon, and I tried to set it up, and it was just such a disaster. I couldn't get all my devices to work. And of course, the Apple TV back then worked differently. I don't remember, I don't recall which devices are infrared and which are radio frequency, but one of the things didn't work, and trying to get everything organized was more of a headache than having the remote basket. Now, I know you've got one of these universal remotes, and you make it work. How do, how do you get it? How have you mastered this concept? Well, it hasn't
0: been without compromises, that's for sure. I've been using a Logitech remote for years, originally the, the programmable hardware remote, and now I'm using, I think it's called Smart Home or Smart Hub or something, and it, it comes with a hardware remote and a hub that makes the disparate devices and protocols swing. And you can use their iOS app to program the hardware remote, but you can still use the app as a controller, which is what I do. So the way it works is the hub and the app are on your local network and you create devices for each device that you want to control. So I've got the TV as a device, I've got the receiver, the Apple TV, a PlayStation, all set up as devices. And usually most of these devices will have a protocol code That you enter so the remote knows what controls to tap into. If you've ever programmed a remote, you know what I'm talking about. And then once you get the devices set up, you create activities using a a group of devices. And you also have to tell each activity what inputs on the receiver and the TV are being used and that sort of thing. So it's definitely a Saturday morning project for sure to get it set up. But once you get the activity set up, all you have to do is push a button. And the remote powers on the correct devices, sets up the correct inputs, and, and you're good to go. But like I said, you can also use the Harmony app to access the controls for any device. So for instance, I like to mess around with the audio, input, uh, the audio outputs on the receiver to get like a synth surround or a 5 to 1 or use stereo or change speaker levels. You can
1: adjust the vertical hold.
0: Yes, I can finally adjust the vertical hold remotely. But here's the thing. I'm still the only one in the house who knows how to use the remote. My wife and daughter, <laughs> when they want to do something with music or videos, they have to come to me and give me a, now how does it work? So I am I have become the remote, which I guess is nice. It brings the family together. But I really like the Harmony app, especially on an iPad with a bigger screen. It's perfect on the iPad mini, actually. The phone's too small. It's, there's too much paging you have to do. Uh, and I don't even use the hardware remote. I just so use wait. The...
1: You you bought a universal remote and you don't use the remote.
0: No, I prefer the app. I I like to use the Harmony app.
1: Oh, okay. Can you buy the hub on its own mm. and set it up and use the iOS device, or do you have to buy the handheld remote? Because these these things aren't cheap. I'll put a link in the show notes to one of the ones that I think it's the Logitech Harmony, which is. the the one that most people buy. I don't know if they make one that's just the
0: hub and no remote, but I wouldn't be surprised. They're like a printer company. You know, they make every variation of hardware you can possibly think of. So I wouldn't be surprised if you could get a hub and just use the app with it.
1: I, I know that my experience was pretty bad because the setup used some sort of Java. And every time you adjusted the settings, you had to send them to a web server and they got bounced back. Um, and I think the web server was the thing that confirmed exactly what device you had or something like that.
0: Yeah, you used to have like an account uh, at their site and it would store all the settings and you connect it to the internet by, by plugging it into your computer. Isn't that right?
1: You plugged it into your computer via USB to be able to set it up. It was a real pain. And and I kept it for a week and I sent it back.
0: I had one of those for a long time. In fact, for years we had that because it was it was the best universal remote that we could find. And I forget the name of the model. they change all the time, but i didn 't really ever have a problem with that, except that it had limited flexibility again, that particular hardware one this is before the hub and before the app you could it only did so many things it only had so many buttons. I mean, if you were able to change a channel and raise the volume, you were golden you know that's that was my test it's like as long as we can do that uh we'll be fine
1: yeah, but you 've already got remotes, so why do you need one to change? well you don't want to be watching tv sitting there
0: with a a lap full of remotes and even so with with the universal remote that i have i still keep the tv remote close by or the apple tv remote close by just in case because sometimes it just things just don't click and i'm not like i don't want to diss the logitech harmony because i think it does a fabulous job considering what i want to do with it um but uh, as far as like you know, actually using the physical remote that they provide, I, I just can't.
1: Yeah, I, I think the the only things that I'll generally want to do if I'm watching a movie is pause, play and lower the volume when it gets to the explosions. Sure. And the Apple TV remote is certainly easier to use for pause if I'm going through the Apple TV. It's it's easier to pause with that than it is to remember which button it is on the universal remote, which might be the pause button, but it might not because the pause button might be to pause the TV, but not the Apple TV. See,
0: now again, just the, by the way that we're talking about the esoteric <laughs> way that we use the remotes, it again says that we are the TV remotes. exactly, And that other people in our house... It's like, hey, dad, or hey, honey, can you, I want to, why does this have to be so difficult? And I think they've just resigned themselves that there's a geek in the house who likes to mess around with the electronics. And, and it's not that I keep this information private, but I do change things up so frequently that it's impossible, and even for myself, to keep up on what I did when I used it last because I just mess around with that stuff. But, and the other, the irony is, is that nobody in my house watches television. We all have iPads <laughs> that we watch we consume video on nobody sits in front of the tv anymore we're gonna i think we're gonna watch a movie this weekend my wife and i and it'd be the first time in months that we've actually sat in front of the television
1: well that's a shame then you can't share your you watching you can't watch something in sync on an iP- Well, you could if you start it at this exact same time so that way you'll laugh at the same time when you get to the funny parts
0: you come close to the reality we've actually attempted things like that it's like what are you watching right now I was like, wait a minute, let me see if I can catch up.
1: Well, I, I think it's clear that this does not pass the spouse test. <laughs> right. Um, that it's only the geek dad who can handle it. Right. And, and I find that our solution here, not having a universal remote, but we have a universal index card, which has a list of the order of things and how they have to be set up to be able to do different things. So like, if you want to watch a movie, you turn on the TV, you switch to the amplifier, you turn the amplifier on, you switch to this, etc. So we do have an index card in the remote basket.
0: So you have, you should have a little pocket on the side of the basket so that you don't mix up your index cards with the remotes. You just want to keep that stuff
1: separate. Well, see, you, I think you're going about it the wrong way, changing things often. I don't do that. Well, I don't have the universal, but whatever's set up, it's always going to be the TV has an input device you have to select and then the amp you have to select whatever input is, which more often than not is the Apple TV streaming from my iTunes library. Or if it's my Plex library, that comes straight from the TV. So it's just the aux input for any of those things on the amplifier. It's very rare that I play a disc anymore, so I don't even have to change that.
0: You mean a CD? A
1: DVD or a Blu-ray. I usually rip them and put them in my Plex library. Right. So that one, I can't remember the last time I've used the optical disc player. So that means I rarely need to change the input on the amplifier because it's always going to be the aux input no matter what. Right. But we've still got to have the remote for the optical disc player just in case we play a disc. You never know. It's got to be around. Can't lose it because otherwise, hell, you got to get up and press the buttons to start it and to pause it and, and all that. Do you clean your remotes? I don't very often. In um, a, a few years ago when I was living in France, I had a cleaner who came in every two weeks and she would clean the remotes. Oh, French maid, cleaning the remotes. Is, nice. Yeah, it's really practical, yeah. but I never think of it. Um, they get- Yeah, every so often I have to. They get dusty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we've made great progress, haven't we? Because we can sit in our easy chairs and change channels and adjust the vertical hold. But what a headache if you have more than one device that you need to control- We are the exception, though, because most people don't use an amplifier. Do you have an amplifier in the living room? Of course. Yeah. So we're the exception. Most people don't do that. They just listen through their TV speakers or a soundbar, which is increasingly popular. But the soundbar still needs to be turned on, doesn't it?
0: I suppose. Yeah, it needs to be powered. Could they be hooked up to the TV in such a way that when you power the TV on, the the soundbar powers
1: it on? Yeah. And fewer people have optical drive players, so you're essentially going to have say, a game console, an Apple TV, a device like that, plus your TV, and most people won't have that many remotes anymore as we do.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's actually true. In fact, also, you could probably just get by with just a, a new Apple TV. I mean, that provides pretty much everything you'd want to see, unless you have cable and that sort of thing. Oh ah, but- yes, I
1: forget cable. See, we don't have cable. Um, I had satellite or TV over ADSL when I was in France, so there was an additional remote for that, too. But we don't do that here.
0: Yeah, I haven't had cable in over 20 years, and I wish I could say... It's because it would just mean another remote in my living room. it's
1: other reasons. Okay, we don't have any solutions do we We don't have any answers. We're but... still you know
0: it's still the clash of, of paradigms. We're still trying to use analog equipment in a, in a digital way that and, we, and this, this these remotes just aren't working out very well. It's like they don't all talk together. they don't they don't all look the same. they don't have the same uh, protocols. They're, it's just we're not there. Yet.
1: This seems like something that Apple could fix. Well,
0: isn't Apple TV supposed to be the no, one? No, cl- no,
1: that they could fix the remote thing, that you would oh, pick I up see. your iPhone and talk to Siri and say, Siri, I want to watch a movie and it turns everything on. Yeah. And, and that using their home kit, which is what controls home automation devices, you would be able to program all these things. Of course, each device would have to be home kit compatible. You'd need an adapter. Or maybe they could make their own hub like the HomePod, the the speaker Siri device that's coming out in the fall. Maybe that could be something that has the equivalent um, infrared and radio frequency transmitters that could control things. So you might set it up the way you do the Logitech, and just as you use the app on your iPhone, you'd be able to set it up with Siri to say, you know, do this. I want to watch a movie. I want to look at the Apple TV or I want to play a game. Did you
0: find that when you were looking at the, the the Logitech stuff that they interface with Alexa so that you could speak to Alexa? They do interface with Alexa, yes. So you could talk to Alexa and say, turn the TV on or whatever it is you do. Well, you'd
1: have to have one of those Alexa devices first, which is not something that I really find very useful. Uh, I find it more practical to know that if I do want to do something like that, I've got an iPhone or an iPad, and I can do it. I don't want to have a a, a localized device that has to be in one room. Of course, if you were using it for something like this, it could be good to have it in the living room, and if it can work like that. But you still need to program everything through the Logitech software, and you still need to figure out, okay, so how am I going to call this? Let's see. Watch a movie is going to turn on all six of these things, but it's also going to turn down your lights. So the Amazon device can work with Philips Hue lights, So maybe you'd have a a lighting scene that you want for movies and you bring down the lights at the same time. It's true that all of this, on the one hand, it's really interesting, the things that you can do in terms of automation. On the other hand, it's really not that much of a hassle to turn the lights down yourself. Yeah. Um, I
0: I like the idea of home automation and the idea that you can control lights and the temperature and things like that. But based on my experience with remote controllers until now, it kind of makes me dubious that... uh, that a lot of complex things can be done, and you know, or can't, or can't
1: be done at all. I have two Philips Hue lights here in my office. I have two um, two standing lamps, one in, in the corner behind my desk, and one in the corner at the other end of the office, and they are controlled by the Philips Hue. So they're Philips Hue bulbs, and they're controlled by the Philips Hue, what is it, base station or whatever. And I can tell my iPhone turn the lights on, turn the lights off, dim the lights, and it will control the lights that I've set up in this room. If I had these Philips Hue lights throughout the house, it would do the same thing for all of these lights. Can you do zones? And then you have other... Can you do zones? You can set them up in zones by room. I can say, turn on the bedroom lights, dim the bedroom lights. The problem is the bulbs are quite expensive. So I bought the two for my office because it's practical to use when I'm working and as an experiment. I think we're not too far away from that. And, and the fact that you can set them up by room makes it a little bit easier to control than four disparate remote controls in the living room.
0: Yeah, but still, it's like you have to pair your bulbs. Sounds like something my wife would do in the garden. Um, You've got to pair all the bulbs. And, you know, my experience, like I said, my experience with remotes thus far has been like, well, you can spend a lot of time setting this stuff up, but there's no guarantee that it's going to uh, provide good future results.
1: Well, it seems like added complication and added expense for something that's not really essential. And and I understand that if people want to put the lights on when they're not yet home in the evening, they want to turn the heat on at a certain time because it's gotten cold out. But, you know, I I think it goes too far. And, And the price will drop and things will get easier. But for now, it's a bit of a gadget.
0: Gadget. Very gadgety. Uh, we're going to wrap this episode up. If you have any comments about this show, about your experience using remote controls or HomeKit home kit or any kind of home automation, let us know in the comments at our site. As I said earlier, we got some really great comments on our episode last week, which I found fun to read, and I, I think uh, just proves we have a pretty smart listenership. So if you have a chance, make a comment at the website. We're at thenexttrack.com.
1: In some cases, I remember when and where I first heard an album in others the memories are vague back in the early nineteen eighties i was plugged into a lot of english music bands on indie labels like factory rough trade fiction and others this was the heyday of indie music with small labels springing up every week and i read the british music press melody maker new musical express looking for bands to discover at some point theater of hate fronted by a singer named kirk brandon crossed my radar not just because his name was kirk I recall buying their first release, a cassette recording of a live concert from 1981 called He Who Dares Wins. I I still actually have that cassette someplace, and I tried to find it this morning, but I was unable to. This was the early days of The Walkman, and I always had mine with me, and this tape quickly earned its spot in rotation in my cassette player and in my pockets. The Theatre of Hate followed up with another live recording, Live at the Lyceum, and then their first studio album, Westworld. This was produced by Mick Jones of The Clash, and it sounded like The Clash. It had that Sandinista sound. This was the record that they had just finished. The title track on the album, Westworld, was a breakout single. It hit the top 40 in the UK, but it didn't get near number one. But it's still an emblematic song that brings back the early 1980s. Theatre of Hate's music was bombastic post-punk that featured Kirk Brandon's howling vibrato. The band was essentially drums, bass, and saxophone. There was some guitar, but... There were no guitar solos, at least in the live recordings, and and only a few on the studio stuff. And that was a bit odd in this type of music. A lot of these songs had biblical or historical reference. Brandon clearly had ambitions. Some of the titles were Original Sin and Judgment Hymn and The Wake in any case the band recently or at least what's left of the band which is essentially kirk brandon they recently released a five disc set of live recordings called the live albums i'll include a link to this on apple music in the show notes there are three early sets from eighty one and eighty two and then there are two later concerts from when the band did some of those reunion shows to try and make some money listening to some of this music brings back some memories for me but after a while it got a bit tiring these are live recordings so they're not very polished But the music that sounded fresh back then sounds a bit hackneyed now. Some of these songs were really good songs, particularly in the studio recordings, thanks to Mick Jones's production. And the band might have had some potential. But they broke up after that first studio album. Brandon went on to form Spear of Destiny, which has had a long off and on career. I took a quick glance at his website this morning. And he's currently embarking on a tour of small pubs playing on acoustic guitar accompanied by a cellist. I really don't know what that means. In any case, this is an interesting snapshot of a post-punk band that might have become the next Clash, but that failed to deliver due to a grandiose approach to music that eventually became tiring. It's worth noting that the studio album Westworld is on the streaming services, but without the first title track. You can find that song in a collection of the band's singles or in a couple of compilation albums. And I think this studio album holds up a lot better than the live recordings, but it is really interesting to hear this youthful energy on stage. So, Theater of Hate, it's called the live albums. You won't want to listen to the whole thing, but maybe listen to one of the later sets. Maybe not the first one, because they added a lot of songs between the first one early 81 and the second one in September 81, and then the last one on the set, which was from 1982. But this gives an idea of the energy that was going on with these post-punk bands. What about you, Doug? Find anything interesting this week?
0: Oh, yeah, did I listen to this? So in 1971, John Lee Hooker puts out an album called Endless Boogie. And a friend of mine had it, and we used to listen to it a lot. And I frequently saw it in record stores. And by my accounting, it seemed like a relatively popular album. It's got an all-star studio band with Steve Miller and Jesse Ed Davis, Jim Gordon, Carl Rattle, the Delaney and Bonnie people. And it's it's your basic John Lee Hooker album. There's some stretched out boogie and the soloists are featured. And, and this is the album that I associated with John Lee Hooker for a really long time. But Endless Boogie is not my next track because I discovered another album that John Lee Hooker recorded in 1971 just before this album called Hooker in Heat because the backup band is Canned Heat. Well, let me tell you something. This is one of the best blues and boogie albums I have ever ever heard. And it's especially interesting because it's the last album that Canned Heat's harmonica player recorded before he passed away. It's a guy by the name of Alan Wilson, otherwise known as Blind Owl Wilson. He's the voice that everybody associates with Canned Heat on their going up the country and uh, on the road again. Anyway, he cooks on harp on this album. And the cool thing about the recording is that it starts with just a few tracks from John Lee and the band kind of gradually adds some flavor as each track is recorded and there's some just great long real endless boogie on this record and i got to say something about the recording it's really intimate i mean you can hear the room it's just one of those great recordings if you need an introduction to boogie this is it john lee hooker and canned heat hooker and heat is my next track this has been the next track a podcast about how people listen to music today You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.